and welcome to After Age, a podcast where two adults dive into young adult books in order to discuss how their appeal transcends age and other boundaries. My name is Corinne. And I'm Tasia. And today we are very excited to be talking about Legend Born by Tracy Dion with a special guest, friend of the podcast, Colby. How y'all Hi. doing? Good. How are you? Good. Chilling. Great. Yeah, we are so excited to have you here today. Before we dive into this book, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your various podcasts. Yeah, sure. So my name is Colby, like y'all said very well. <laughs> I am, uh, this is important for this podcast. I am a North Carolina resident, born, bred, uh, Tar Heel, graduated from the University of North Carolina. And I have a lot of experiences I'd like to talk about regarding that and this book. As far as podcasts, uh, Four Nations Report, which is now ended, which was an Avatar The Last Airbender rewatch podcast, as well as Martha and Colby Grow Up, which is a monthly podcast uh, with our mutual friend, uh, Martha Riley, mm-hmm. as well as Never Made Varsity, which is a mostly Carolina sports podcast, but we just talk about whatever we want to. Excellent. I do see that you are wearing a North Carolina shirt today. Yeah, that is because that is the majority of my wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> you can see behind me, We I have like a framed, uh, the frame front page from the Daily Tar Heel, the DTH, as nice. she called it in the book, um, as well as my and my partner's letters uh, when oh. we were in band. It's a very Carolina room. Band. Oh, I love that. <laughs> That's so exciting. Bands are the best. Marching band? Yeah, marching band. Oh my god, so cool. I love that. That was like my favorite part of college football. We were both members of the pride of the ACC, the Marching Tar Heels. Love it. Love it so much. So we're we're really excited to have you here today. When I first read this book back in January and February, I immediately first texted Tasia and said, "Uh, this is incredible. We have to cover it on the pod. But um, also, we should see if Colby wants to come on since we knew you <laughs> went there. And we're really excited to hear your perspective on it as a Carolina grad. Uh, but before we dive into this book itself, we always like to start off with talking about what we're kind of obsessing over this week, things that are uh, new and exciting on our radar. Tasia, want to go first? Sure. I have a lot of stuff this week. It's exciting. I like when we have a lot of stuff to talk about. So I read Last Night at the Telegraph Club by Melinda Lowe, which is... It takes place in the 1950s in San Francisco's Chinatown, kind of a queer coming of age story that also deals with a lot of the, um, you know, Chinese American racism regarding like the Red Scare and uh, communism and everything. And it's really, really good. I cannot overstate that. Gets into really interesting queer history stuff. Um, I also read Fable and Namesake by Adrian Young, which is a Really good duology. Uh, Corinne, I think you talked about it on this podcast already. I did. And nothing thrills me more than when I recommend something <laughs> and you love it as much as I did. Yeah, the the hype is, is real. It's worth it. Um, and then I read People We Meet on Vacation by Emily Henry, which is also incredible. I was completely blown away by this. And uh, oh, and I just recently started watching Castlevania, which, uh, you know, as a noted vampire simp, uh, I'm, I'm all about it. <laughs> Uh, excellent. I love all those things. Yeah, people we meet on vacation. I'm not sure I talked about it on the podcast, but it's like kind of when Harry Met Sally inspired rom-com mm-hmm. and it was way better than I I had any anticipation that it would be. So yeah. I'm glad you liked that as well. I think that was one. Did you stay up to like 5.30 in the morning? I, I did on a work night. It was uh, real great. I make really good decisions. 
I've heard really good things about Castlevania. It's really good. Uh, the first season is only four episodes long, so I mean, love that. Yeah, it's it's worth just getting through that first season. If you don't like it by the end of that, then you know, no harm, no foul. Uh, four episodes. So, what what's it on? Netflix. Well, all right, great. Colby, how about you? What are you into these days? Uh, these days, so I recently picked up Mass Effect Legendary Edition, which is a bundle of three games from the Mass Effect series franchise, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Mass Effect is a sci- it's science fiction. It's an alternate universe where humanity and several other alien civilizations have colonized the Milky Way Ooh. and are using technology from a precursor civilization. I totally read that off of Wikipedia to be prepared. <laughs> uh, but it, it's a really cool franchise and a really cool RPG where I get to make decisions that are actually impactful later in the game and really later in the series where now decisions that I made in Mass Effect 1, I'm seeing the repercussions for it in Mass Effect 3. It's a really cool sort of gameplay system that they set up. I've never played an RPG like this before. This is just like a really interesting series that talks a lot about what is free will and what is humanity and what is humanity when we are also talking with and communicating with and working with and against several other different civilizations that have different cultures and have look different than what we know organic life to look at is very interesting i'm liking it so far and i get to shoot and blow stuff up so. <laughs> always very fun i feel like that's great because i think like the thesis statement of this podcast video games are something that also like have more to them than i think a lot of people give them credit for and that's one of the things we're trying to combat here and i think that that sounds like a great example of exactly that that there's it's not all just like mario kart racing that like is <laughs> kind of mindless and fun has a time and a place well, say, like, this, i was gonna say we're, we're not mario here to disparage kart. mario kart <laughs> no, totally not disparaging mario kart it's fine even though i'm like absolutely terrible at any sort of video game whatsoever <laughs> much to my husband's chagrin uh but i i appreciate them uh generally but i'm not good at them but no that sounds that sounds awesome cool anything else that and Holy Moly, uh, the oh. show on ABC, which is a mixture of mini golf and that. Remember that show Wipeout that was oh, on yeah. ABC a while ago? It's like if you took Wipeout and put it on a mini golf course, it is oh. funnier than it has any right being. Like, I'm not like a haha, that person found down that's funny person, <laughs> but this show is hilarious. Oh, uh, I highly recommend it. It's on Hulu. I think all three seasons are on Hulu. Check out Holy Moly if you right. really just need to laugh for a little bit. That's Who doesn't need that? We all need that. That's exactly. very fun. I like it a lot. Uh, I have a couple of things, too. One is a very easy binge of a show called Starstruck. It is a British import that recently made its way to HBO Max. It's only six 20 minutes or so episodes. It's written, created by, and stars a comic from New Zealand. I'm going to butcher her last name, I apologize, Rose Matafeo, I think maybe is how we say it. It is about this girl named Jessie who is living in London, and she's kind of a mess of a millennial who on New Year's Eve has one one night stand with this really hot guy who she wakes up in the morning and realizes this very um, famous movie star 
I mean, the premise of so many great fanfics out there. <laughs> no, it's, it's really, yes, exactly. Uh, but it's really funny and it's really about like kind of their chance encounters after that and like kind of misunderstandings and it's kind of a will they or won't they and uh, it could have been like a truly perfect movie actually if you just watch it straight through kind of does feel like a movie and it's about two hours Um, but there is going to be a season two and I just found it really charming and funny the main guy his name is Nikesh Patel who I only know from he was in Mindy Kaling's Four Weddings and a Funeral that was on Hulu a couple years ago which I watched all of despite not very much liking it at all and I didn't really like him in it either um he had he was like the main romantic lead and he had terrible chemistry with our girl uh, Natalie Emanuel from Game of Thrones fame. They were like the main couple and they were not very good together, I didn't think, on that show. So I was kind of nervous. I was like, he's going to be the romantic lead. I'm skeptical. Oh, no, no. He he lived up. So it was just, it was really good and kind of an unexpected delight. And it's all on HBO Max now. He was also in the Artemis Fowl movie. He was, that yes. came out. I did not watch because I... This is a tangent, but I accidentally read the first two Artemis Fowl books out of order when I was a kid, um. so it didn't make any much sense to me. So I was not very interested in that franchise. But got it. Anyway, yeah, I, I know that from um, Insta stalking him after I watched it. <laughs> <laughs> so, as one does. Did you really watch the show if you didn't uh, Insta stalk everyone who's involved after the fact? Corinne is a very thorough Insta stalker too. I get yeah. so much good info out of her. Like my love that. <laughs> <laughs> Don't advertise that too much. I, too, I, too, I know too many things that I shouldn't know, probably. It's fine. Um, I also read this book called The Prison Healer by Lynette Noni. Uh, also, she's Australian or New Zealand. Unintentional connection um, here today. But it is also a fantasy book other than this book that we're here to talk about today, Legendborn. It is probably my favorite YA fantasy of the year. It is set in a fictional prison in this fictional kingdom and it centers around a 17 year old girl named kiva who is the titular prison healer and she has been in this prison for 10 years since she was seven years old she was kind of brought in with her father who was arrested on treason charges she's been getting letters from her family every once in a while snuck through the prison channel saying stay alive we we will come for you stay alive we will come for you All of a sudden, this rebel queen shows up and she's on death's doorstep and it comes with a note from her family saying, keep her alive, we are coming. And this rebel queen is sentenced to die essentially via these trials. There's four elemental trials, air, water, fire, and earth, and they're in place to see if she has hidden magic and no one ever survives them. And so Kiva volunteers herself to be the stand-in for this trial. And it was just... Played with a lot of f- YA fantasy tropes in a lot of unexpected ways. Any riddles by any chance? <laughs> yeah, Colby's very good at riddles. Kate and I learned it preparing <laughs> for this podcast. Uh, there may, I don't think there are specific riddles, but I would be interested to see if you could unravel the riddle that is the plot of this book because I finished reading it at like 8.30 in the morning on a work day and I like just wandered around like, Whoa, like what <laughs> happened? Like, what is real? Like, what, 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 it blew my mind. So it was just a really fun uh, read if you like YA fantasy at all. It's just it plays on a lot of tropes in a clever way, and it just like I said, it blew my mind. And the second book, I love when authors do this. It only came out in April, and the second one comes out in October. We love it. We love to see it. Set it up for a great. Um, it's gonna be a trilogy, but it set up really well for the second book. I'm really excited about it. One last thing I read this week that I really liked. A book called Heart and Soul by Jen Frederick. Soul is S M E O U L S E. 
U-O-L. Which one? The first one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, by an author named Jen Frederick. It is an own voices Korean adoptee story about this uh, girl who um, is born in Korea, adopted by a white couple in the United States. Her adoptive father dies and it kind of sends her on this journey of like really questioning where she came from. And she goes to Seoul to try to get some answers about her birth parents and so it's partially about her journey kind of through self-discovery, but then also has all the makings of a K-drama, which if you've listened to all of our episodes before, you know, Tasia and I are particularly fans of Crash Landing on You, which is like the most romantic, most romantic K-drama ever. Uh, so it has a lot of shades of that. She meets like a very Sunni boy and there's all these like twists and turns and it's part one of a duology. It's set up on a really um, interesting kind of cliffhanger on many fronts. And I really, really liked it. Crash landing on you, you say. I know. I'm in. The main guy is described as having like very good dimples. So I just obviously pictured Hyun Bin. Who Captain Ree. Captain Ree in <laughs> Crash landing on you. Uh, give him a Google Colby and listeners someday. He's a, just a very strapping, good looking man who has great dimples. So obviously I pictured him while reading this book. And Put that on my to-do list. Oh, it's, <laughs> if you've never watched a K-drama, it will... If you start with that one, it will just, you watch all of them then, because I've watched a ton since watching that show last year. Really good. But now let's talk about this book because I, like I said, I read this earlier this year and it's still one of my, it's still my top book of the year. And I've been waiting so impatiently for this day for us to talk about it. So let's dive in. But as we always do, we'll start with a quick book summary here, which Tasia is going to read for us. And then we will talk about Legendborn. After the death of her mother in an accident, 16-year-old Bree Matthews desperately wants to escape from her grief, and the early college program at the University of North Carolina seems to be the perfect escape. Things quickly take a turn when on her first night at UNC, Bree witnesses a demon attack. After she is paired with Nick Davis as her mentor in the early college program, Bree learns more about what she witnessed, that there is a secret society on campus called The Order comprised of legend-born students that fight the demons. When the society's mage, Selwyn Kane, attempts to wipe Bree's memory of the events, she is able to resist, which enables her to recall that another mage similarly tried to alter her memory on the night of her mother's death. Armed with this new information, Bree convinces Nick to help her find answers about her mother's death within the Order, and Nick, who had disclaimed his position within the Order, agrees to return in order to help her. Bree then learns that the Order is even more than it seems. The legendborn are descendants of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, bound by oath to fight demons and prepare for a magical war, and Nick is the scion or chosen heir of Arthur himself. As Bree moves through the Order's page program as the only Black person in the Order, she competes with other students for a chance to become one of the scion's oath-bound squires and learns more about her own abilities. Not only is Brie able to summon ether or magic in a way that no one in the Order has seen before, she is also gifted with rootcraft magic, which allows her to make offers to her ancestors and tap into her powers as a medium. Even as Nick and Brie grow close, she and Cell ultimately team up to find out more about her mother's death, learning that Brie's mother witnessed a demon gate being opened at UNC 25 years ago, and Cell's mother, who he thought was dead, was a mage who became unstable and needed to be hidden away. After realizing her mother's death was actually just an accident, Bree decides to walk away from the Order, but not before going to the Order Selection Gala, where Nick chooses her as his squire. Despite her earlier plans to walk away, she agrees, but Nick's father kidnaps her, telling her that he is actually behind the increased demon attacks, hoping to incite the magical war that will require Arthur to call on Nick and take up his name, and planning to use Nick as a pawn to restore the Order to its more traditional ways. The demons make their ultimate attack, killing several members of the Order as they journey underground to where Excalibur is located. Nick arrives and is presumably called by Arthur, 
and he moves to unsheath Excalibur and fight off the demons, but is unable to do so. Bree passes out and learns through her ancestors that her ability to control Aether is due to the fact that she is actually Arthur's scion, as one of her ancestors was a slave who was raped and impregnated by one of Arthur's descendants. Bree awakens and fights off the demons, but Nick, who is revealed to actually be a descendant of Lancelot, has been kidnapped by his father, who plans to hold Nick hostage to use him as a bargaining chip and prevent the round table from gaining full strength. With Cell by her side, Bree embraces her powers and vows to find Nick. That was a really hard summary for me to write because <laughs> so much happens in this chunk of a book. It's a chunk. It's a it, whole it, chunk. It this is. Is, it's a big boy. It, it, <laughs> she thick. Um, yeah. But it does fly and it has so much going on. But one of the things we were saying before we hit record here today, just kind of gathering our thoughts on this, is that I'm going to steal what you said, Colby, is that there's a lot of balls in the air in this book. And what's incredible about it is that they're all caught and executed very, very well. And it's kind of an incredible feat. So again, as someone who has been uh, just loving this book for months now, what did you two think having just read it? So for me, this ended up being a very personal book in a way that I didn't think that it would be. Uh, Bree's story is a lot like mine. Uh, just, and I feel like is a lot like a lot of black folk who end up going to Carolina, or just black people in general who find them find their themselves in very white places, places where historically we were not welcomed, mm-hmm. and we can get into some of the details of that later. But I really felt seen by this book in a way that I had not been seen by other books recently. Mm-hmm. So I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I don't really want to get into my real Carolina things and fake Carolina things <laughs> yet, but I, uh, I really liked it. Tasia. Yeah. Um, I, I told Corinne a few times that uh, it was kind of a fun experience because like for a lot of the book, just plot wise, like uh, lore wise, I just did not really know what was going on, but I was having a, f- a good time. So I didn't worry about it. Um, but like you said, like all the, all the balls that were in the air were caught at the end. Um, and it started to make a lot more sense, but yeah, this was, this was a journey. Yeah. I, I agree that the lore here is still, even on second read is a little confusing. I ultimately don't think it matters too much. Like who's a scion, who's a page, who's a squire, who's a vassal. Like it, like what all of these things mean. Right. And- <laughs> there was definitely a part of the book where I was like, this is getting into the, the YA trope. It, it felt, it reminded a little me a little bit of maze runner where it's like, this mm-hmm. is a whole page of nothing words. <laughs> <What does laughs> that mean? That mean absolutely nothing to me. Um, but like you said it's not super important it's not it doesn't the story doesn't hinge on that so it's fine but i thought it was a little funny reading it i was like this this is literally this means nothing to me yeah right and i think it's one of the things we also said before we started recording is just how smart tracy dion is like she's brilliant this book is is so well researched and so well written generally i think maybe she just got a little too in the weeds of the Arthur lore a little bit which is fine in her prerogative but I don't think it it matters a ton and ultimately at the end of the day I think for me I don't know what your uh, both of your familiarity with the King Arthur story is that 
I know just the bare bones and just enough that it all made sense to me when it came to the big players of Arthur Lancelot. We have a Guinevere reference and Merlin. Uh, those were the really important things that I think if you know a little bit about them, uh, that is helpful. Um, but yeah, I, I do think it definitely leans. One of the things I liked about it is how it does lean into a lot of the YA tropes plus all of this other stuff. I mean, two separate points in her author bio, Tracy Dion refers to herself as a fangirl and talks about how she spends her spare time reading fanfic. So she knows what she's doing in terms of writing that stuff in. But I think a lot of times in YA, you get like maybe one or two more serious themes and then like a romance. But this, how how she manages to, to deal with, the, I think, the issues of you know, grief and Bree's mother's death and just generational trauma and the lasting effects of, of slavery. And then on top of it, like fun romance and like fun moments and like callbacks to like Twilight, like the Twilight references were so funny. <laughs> so funny. So she like knows what she's doing in terms of catering to YA fan base. Um, and she liked all of those things. If you, she's a great Twitter follow, by the way. She's like obsessed with Bucky Barnes. She was tweeting like this whole big long <laughs> thing about the other day about like one little Bucky moment in one mo- Marvel movie. Uh, so she, it, the way she wove all that, which kind of like blew me away. I also want to say that like in regards to certain YA tropes, we all know that the uh, love triangle is a really big one. And I think it was done really well in this book. Just because usually in a love triangle, it's like so obvious which one is like is the the quote unquote right right choice. Um, usually one of the guys is a piece of shit and the other one is fine. But this one is really good in the way that it kind of subverts a lot of that. Like we have Sal who himself like was also in love with Nick at one point and had a big crush on him. And I thought that that was the way that triangle is still working itself out, I think is really interesting. Yeah. Can I do very quickly my real Carolina things and fake Carolina Absolutely. things? Absolutely. I was going to say, let's do that. Before we get into the, the things that actually matter. <laughs> yes. This is what I'm very interested to hear about because, like, I, like, even just when the book is set in Chicago or something where I live, I, I get so immersed into it. But this is such a more like insular location. I can't imagine what it would have been like to read a book set at my college. So (laughs) how was that? Tell us everything as a young expert. So I actually don't know much about the early college program um, at Carolina, by the way, first quote unquote, Carolina, no one at the school calls it UNC. Uh, It's, it's just, it's just not a thing. It's just, everyone calls it Carolina. They ask where you go to school. I say Carolina. Um, so right now I live about 15 minutes from campus. Um, mm-hmm. I graduated three years ago, so I'm I'm not that far removed from from school. So the geography is still very, very well laid out in my head. Her living in Old East, which is a real building, uh, it makes sense. It is literally right next to all the campus, all the classes on campus. Traditionally. Uh, first-year students live on South Campus, and it's just mm-hmm. kind of its own community. There aren't any classrooms down there, so you're just kind of living with your people, and then you have to do a 20-minute hike uphill <laughs> to mm-hmm. get to classes. Um, but it, it makes sense that she would live in Old East 
uh, Greenlaw, Lenore, all of North Campus, uh, the old well where people do drink from the old well on the first day of classes. Uh, for good luck, it never works. I did it my first <laughs> my first year <laughs> Carolina drunk from the old well and uh, did not get all A's that semester. Um, all that's a real thing. Uh, Alice mentioned very early in the book that she was taking English 105 and that that was like a slacker course. Mm. Um, it is notoriously extremely hard to place out of English 105. Okay. Uh, I did not know anybody in my time at Carolina who placed out of English 105 and I knew some brilliant people. Um, I think nowadays it's a slightly easier, but it's like everyone takes English 105. You have to. Okay. Well, that's going to really like feed Tasia's anti-Alice feelings. She's been texting <laughs> me all week about how mad she is at Alice. We'll save it. <laughs> I don't know how I walked away from this book with just like a pure, just molten hot, like <laughs> hatred for Alice. She was a bad friend. I'll get into it later. But yeah, um, slacker class my ass. Her mom just died. Give her a fucking break. I have. I have some sympathy for Alice and we can talk about that with one of my themes later. Yeah. There was something hidden in Hill Hall, which is a music building. One of the clues for the, for one of the riddles, uh, mm -hmm. those practice rooms are a maze down there. I was in the band. So I was in Hill a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's a great place to hide something. If you want to hide it because it is impossible to get around down there. Um, mm -hmm. And also Carolina club uh, where they do that last little, uh, gala, 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 however mm -hmm. you say it. I say it differently every time. Yeah, me too. <laughs> that's that's a real place. Um, I have eaten at the Carolina Club before, and it was a very interesting experience. Mm. Um, but all of those are real, legit Carolina things. As far as fake stuff, jumping into a quarry in Durham, I've never heard. I asked uh, my partner. Uh, she had never heard of anybody <laughs> jumping into a quarry before classes started. Also, they said that someone got suspended for their first game and it was against state. We don't play state first. We never play state first. If they ever schedule North Carolina state, excuse me, NC state, we just call them state. Uh, we never play state first. We play state last. It's normally the day after Thanksgiving that Black Friday is when we play state. Um, but again, doesn't really matter. This is the very uh, <laughs> detailed information that we wanted and expected from you. I love it. It's great. Those are the things that bother me too when I read books. So yeah, yeah. it's just like there were little things like we wouldn't play state first. It right. just wouldn't happen. Yeah. Uh, lastly, the Unsung Founders Memorial. That's a real thing. Mm. It is on campus, but it's not in the Arboretum. It is a little, it's like northwest of the Arboretum. It's actually in the same quad where that statue, the Confederate statue, was right. on Carolina's campus. While she was writing this book, I imagine uh, the statue was called Silent Sam. Um, you can Google it and see all the articles that were written about si Silent Sam. Um, that hat was that statue was torn down by um, activists and students at Carolina, and the last chancellor would not put it back up after it was torn down. Um, and right now, it's just kind of uh, they even like tore down the pedestal, so it's just like an empty space on the northern quad. But it was there my entire four years at Carolina. Um, the Silent Sam statue was there. 
And it was kind of off to the side of the unsung founders memorial, which no one knew really, except if you were a black student at Carolina, we knew it was there and we knew what it stood for. Uh, A lot of the white students just thought it was a table and used it as such. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. It is a little bit more. I really loved Arboretum. It's a really cool place to have something like that. Um, But that's not where it is. Yeah. Yeah. Her her author's note in the back of the book is one of the better author notes I've ever read. It's very detailed in terms of a lot of the themes of the book. But she talks about some of the liberties she took with the geography at Carolina and the change of making it. I forget what the guy's name was um that her ancestor had encountered but she makes the statue named after him um but one of the things i guess i wanted to talk about too and i've talked about with some of our other friends of the podcast as they were reading this book is the choice to have brie be 16 and be a high schooler and i think at least according to what i read that early college i think she made it up like in i don't know if it's real or there might be some version of it but i think there's a version of it but I never encountered high schoolers taking classes at Carolina. God bless them if they ever did. They would be <laughs> in for a hell of a time. Yeah. Um, but I, I I don't think the early college program. Oldies has a bunch of different I was also an RA at Carolina, so mm. the resident I know a lot about the residential learning programs. Sure. Early college wasn't one we ever talked about. And that would have been I'm sure that would have been one of the programs we would have learned about. It never yeah. came up. I don't think at least the way that uh, she describes it. I don't think that's a thing at Carolina. Yeah. And it makes me wonder why she did that versus just having Brie be a freshman. I mean, that mm-hmm. could have, for me, it seems like a very artificial designation and I can't really think of any reason why she did it other than to really firmly plant this as a YA book. Yeah. There are plenty, there are plenty of YA books where where the main characters are 18, 19 years old. So yeah. it, it feels weird, um, especially with like the romance stuff. It feels weird to have her be 16 and have them be, because it felt it felt like they were older, even though Nick, I think, is only a year older than her. Cell is 18. She's 16. It feels weird. It feels weird. It definitely yeah. feels weird. It, and it feels unnecessary. Like it, that was a choice that didn't really need to be made. Um yeah, even um, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, like, I think those characters are even, like, at least 18 or 19 when the show starts. Yeah, I I don't know why she did that, and it's 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 fine. I, I just, like, just don't think about it, yeah. I'm hoping maybe, like, in her, when she releases the second book, which she's provided no detail on, much to my frustration, there might, <laughs> she might have some author events or something that um, I'd like to, like, chime in on, because that's my biggest... I don't want to necessarily say an issue, but particularly one in the back half when things start to get interesting with Cell, I'm like, okay, he's 18. Not that like I had friends who, when we were 16, were dating 18 year olds, but they started dating when like they were 14 and the boy was 16 and they just like kind of grew up together. This is a little different. And not even like romantically speaking, almost everybody that she interacts with is is a college college student. student. And it feels weird that she's 16. I just, I don't know. I would... Yeah, like Colby said, I would love to to learn why. One last real thing: that section of there is a cemetery on campus, mm. um, and there is a section of that of the cemetery that is um, dedicated to um, the black folks who built the school. It's very much off to the side. It's one of those things where you have to know it's there to know it's there. Mm-hmm. 
it's also very creepy cemetery. I don't like walking through it a lot. Yeah. Uh, it's just weird vibes. Um, but it's unfortunately a really great shortcut. Um, so no uh, I, I have walked through it and I have seen um, that memorial plaque before. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a real thing. It's really one of the things that was really interesting. And I knew like we, I knew we were going to talk to you at some point about it, but was reading about Carolina's history after the fact. Cause that's just what I do is I Insta stock TV character or actors after I watch a TV show. And I like to wiki things after I read a book, especially if there's something real in there. And I just like, I really had no idea how old Carolina was. Oldest public university asterisk. Yeah. Well, what's the asterisk? <laughs> what's the asterisk? For? It's just, uh, it's like we have a claim for being the oldest public institution. Mm-hmm. Georgia also has a claim. Uh, William and Mary, I think, was private and then it was private. It was established before Carolina. It was private and then it turned public. Ah, yeah. Um, so it just depends on who you ask. Of course, if you ask anybody at the in the administration and the UNC system, they will tell you Carolina is the oldest public institution. <laughs> yeah, of course. But yeah, no. Then it made it really when I was reading more about it, it makes sense that there is this whole history that why why would i have ever thought about it not having gone there but like it makes sense that all of that is there given when it was founded and uh she really dives into a lot of that so i guess we could talk then i think about again this book has a lot of themes going on but i think obviously the biggest one especially with the subversion of the arthurian legend and the reveal of of brie being arthur's scion here is how she handles and addresses the history of slavery and, and the impact of of it on Bree's life and how it still lingers in the Carolina campus, but also through this organization. And I just think it, I've never read anything like that. And it kind of blew me away. You know, when I was first reading this book, I had like some crazy theories going on in my mind. I was like, okay, well, like Bree's the star of this book. So like, she, she's gotta be Arthur some way, but like how I could not figure out how. So then I was thinking maybe it was going to be like a, now, there's a lot of there's a trend in literature these days to take stories about women who are like villainized in fiction or in myth um, and make them the hero. So I was thinking maybe, oh, like maybe this rootcraft magic is somehow tied to the line of Morgane. That's what I was thinking the whole time. Maybe Morgane was just a, a, a Merlin of color and that's why they were outcast and they really weren't bad. They were just... That's right. I was also there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. That makes me feel um, better. So it, it it kind of reminded me of like uh, the weird. Um, I'm not sure if the if this church still believes this or what their tenets are now, but uh, the Church of Latter Day Saints, um, mm. Mark of Cain stuff mm. uh, for Black folks. That's kind yeah. of how this, at least to me, that's how it was coded at first, and then it. I guess it ended up not being that, but that's at least how I read it. Good old LDS racism. Yeah. That's yeah. Uh, but so then I think how it was ultimately revealed. First of all, those are like the most poetic, beautiful chapters when it switches to like verse. And it just like walloped me over the head. I'm like, of course, like this makes perfect sense that this is how this went down. And while still giving a nice nod to the Arthurian legend that, you know, Lancelot, like, left with Guinevere, essentially, is what happened here to ultimately lead to Nick being down the line. It was just, it it was incredible, incredibly well done and so well seated as she lays the groundwork for all this and discusses all of this leading up to that point in the book. It just, it 
me away. (laughs) I was also thinking during that, like, how is that the only instance? Because when you've, you're so many generations removed from the original Knights of the Round Table, like, there are going to be a bunch, probably, I would think, a bunch of uh, kids down the line that were not. I think she gives herself a good escape hatch when saying that, like, obviously there's multiple heirs to Arthur, but, like, the scion is kind of, like, just the chosen the one. The one person, yeah. 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 And so that kind of gives, it's like, okay, well, I'm sure somewhere along the way, like, not even in the specific case of uh, this horrible rape that happens, it, but, like, there's probably some, like, infidelity along the way or, like, something has to happen yeah. to, like, break the chain, I guess, but, um, so she kind of gives herself that little escape hatch there because it, it makes sense you have to have that because otherwise it's like how do you pick who of these heirs so i really liked all that i read a review um on goodreads in particular um fl- from a black reader a black female reader who said like yeah there's a lot of like some of the criticisms of the book i guess to the extent there are any which i don't understand is that like oh yeah there are these tropes we got a love triangle we got a chosen one we have all this but she said about how like you can't understate the importance of like actually getting to see me like represented as that figure who is, yeah, in these stories that are very, we're very familiar with, but actually to get that here in Brie. And that was like how that was very valuable and kind of goes what you were saying earlier, Colby. Trope yeah. isn't a bad word. Yeah, like, yeah. True. A, a trope is just a thing that we use to describe patterns that we see in in storytelling. Just because a trope is used does not mean that it's hacky or that or that. Like we we need tropes to understand the stories that we are reading or watching or playing through. The great way to put it. Maybe some people can see them as very cliche or whatever, but yeah, we've had all of these stories told before through a white lens, through a straight lens, we can now get all of these stories through other lenses. Yeah. Like it's, it's just because it's been done a million times with white people doesn't mean it should never be done again for anybody else. Right. Yeah. And I think too, again, like I said before, there's so many balls in the air in this book, but like the way she she writes like all of these instances, everything that Brie has to encounter, it comes about, I don't want to say like so naturally, because obviously that is like the nature of it, but like, it's just so seamlessly woven in to the point where you, everything is, it's seated so well again for the ultimate reveal and like really kind of hammers home how impactful that is for Brie and then for you as the reader. But like all the like instances of like microaggressions and outward aggressions, like Brie faces too, I thought was all just, so well done even at the end when she's revealed to be arthur like i think is it tor who's like this is an accident and that is a good alice moment at the end where she's like you know 300 years of like of slavery is an accident no i think she did really well just describing what it's like to be black in these historically white spaces Mm -hmm. i there's just like this feeling that you get there. There's a, a job that I had a couple years ago where there were a couple events at like country clubs. And it's just like, there is something for lack of a better word, like oppressive about walking into those spaces and just feeling like, even though you literally, you are literally there for a person, a purpose, a legit purpose that you do not belong there. You definitely feel that walking around everywhere at UNC, like there, 
these buildings have been there forever. <laughs> like Wilson mm-hmm. Library has been there forever. And you you know who built this school. Like you can yeah. they the um oh there's a department of like uh southern history that does a very good job at contextualizing what Carolina is and how it got there. And it's good to have that feeling put into words so well in a way that I've never read it before, especially in fiction, especially in young adult fiction. Yeah. I really like the scene where she goes to the gala and it's at, what is it called? Uh, Oh, the Carolina club, the Carolina club, a gala and a ball is always like a big thing too. Right. And why like, this is the big shining moment. And yeah, she looks like a rock star. She looks beautiful. Everyone is like, so um, amazed by it. So it would be so easy to just be like, Oh yeah. Like this is her shining moment, but she still touches on like, you know, the, the servers there also being black and like having moments with them. And it's just the really good way to, I think it, depicted at least it was to me and, and got to hear from you that it sounded like it was too and that's what that's what happens like yeah at the at carolina like a lot of the those service types roles are filled by black people and mm-hmm. those moments do happen when they are seeing you do like do good things and the encouragement is always there and, and i'm sure that's what keeps a lot of students um at a lot of black students at UNC going is that sort of encouragement as well as things like the black student movement and the stuff that we have built for ourselves um, at the school. Yeah. I think something that Tracy did that was, um, that I thought was really important was showing that all of these microaggressions and macroaggressions that were levied against free were not just coming from the people that were like, obviously outwardly racist, they were people that were like friendly to her that were like touching her hair without permission that were, um, you know, just the, the affected diversity uh, when when she first got there. Right. And then all the noted stares. It's um, I think that was really important to show that these, these kinds of aggressions aren't just coming from like the outwardly racist people. It's, it's everybody. Or even uh, Nick's dad who, um, Puts a good front on all all the whole book. All well and good until um until your son wants to get with a black girl and then mm-hmm. then there are problems. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll talk about him too because fuck him. But also fuck Nick too, by the way. That's how I feel. Yeah, okay. So let's, let's, okay, let's talk about because that's where I was gonna go next. Because okay, so for Nick on on my first read, you know, I'm of course like he's kind of like catnip. He's meant to be like this like Prince and shining armor coming in. He's like golden and beautiful and wonderful. But like, I think it's really interesting how from the very beginning, even he's like, can't tell to what extent she is purposely setting him up to be, I don't want to say like a bad guy because I don't think that that's true, but he's kind of like an example of like, we've talked a lot about and particularly last year, like more of like an optical ally or just like not getting it. Because he like says at the beginning too, like Brie talks about how there's no one there who looks like her at her first like order event. And he says something like, if anyone says anything, let me know and I'll put a stop to it. And she's like, he's so certain he understands what I'm facing. Then I think of Norris, the dean, and how some things some people don't want to just stop. 
I think of what it might cost me to infiltrate the order to succeed in an institution founded by men who could have legally owned me and wanted to. So it's like Nick can't, he can't get it obviously, but like he's all, she's very intentionally giving him these moments where he's like not getting, and he's kind of like almost brushing aside or like not really engaging with Brie about like her pushback on that. I think he also tells her at one point, like, it's okay. Like you'll calm down. She's like, no, like don't tell me to calm down. But also just like how he's like all big and bad till daddy comes around. And then it's yeah. like, re- it's, I, the thing with Nick is I, I know him. Like I, mm-hmm. I know that dude. I have seen that dude. Yeah. You know, I don't, I really don't like, like he, the way that he um, abuses his power over cell, I think is very yes. unfucking cool. Um he he will physically attack Cell knowing that Cell can't do anything back. And the way he exploits that, that there's an obvious power differential in their relationship and he abuses it. Yeah. I kind of wonder too. So there's a scene when like Cell and Bree are poking around in um his dad's and Nick's dad's house and like Cell talks about how like, oh, Nick tries to act like he doesn't care what his dad thinks and Bree's like he doesn't and so I was like oh no like he does like he's very purposely trying to push pushing back against that legacy and yeah he and Bree have a connection which I think is romantic it's also also part of the Lancelot Arthur connection there's a lot of things going on there too but part of me on reread couldn't help but wonder whether like subconsciously I don't think it's conscious at all but subconsciously whether or not he like latches on to Bree as like an ultimate fuck you to his dad because mm-hmm. he's like, again, like you said, like, oh, I've got this black girl with me now. Like, look, and she's outside the system. And Davis reveals himself to also just be like horribly sexist. He's like, we we were supposed to like protect the women. And like, now they're at the round table. Like, no. And so, you know, he he does some things that now when I think about it, like a second time through, like at the gala, Brie comes in with the intention of saying goodbye. And she makes the choice ultimately, like not to do that. But she's not even standing with the pages when it's the selection time. And Nick is just like, I choose Paige Matthews. And it's like, she's not even putting herself up for it. He's just like making that choice for her. Mm -hmm. So it does really seem like, again, on reread, she's very subtly like poking at that type of allyship and just that type of, as you said, Kobe, like, you know, people like that, like, yeah. To critically engage with him a little bit more than I did initially. I think there are hints at the end too when it is revealed that she is actually the scion of Arthur and and Nick is sort of reluctant to like he seems a little reluctant to accept that. Um, and not until I mean Cell is the first one to to kneel for her and it takes Nick a minute to like catch on. I'm wondering if in the next in the next book or whatever, we're gonna finally see some like conflict there between her and Nick because I know that he said for this entire book that he never wanted to be the scion of Arthur he never wanted any of this but I think now that maybe like maybe now that it's been taken away from him right that he's gonna be like he's gonna be a little resentful of that because he was promised this big thing even if he pretended he didn't want it don't trust that dude I from the beginning I did not (laughs) trust that dude not one not one lick now so on the other hand Mm -hmm. It always came off to me like he is, this is a job, he's doing his job. It it never felt like there was anything behind him being 
oath bound to to serve Nick. So when once it finally comes out that, or once he finally figures out that <laughs> she's not a literal demon, uh, <laughs> it just ends. It's like okay, cool. <laughs> then it's totally fine. Yeah. Um, it felt a little bit like Sawyer and Kate in mm-hmm. Lost. Mm-hmm. Nick seems like the type of dude that later down the line, if this did become more serious, would try to control every aspect of her life. Mm-hmm. And Cell is very much content to just let her do whatever the hell she wants um, and will support her in that sort of endeavor in a way that I'm not sure if Nick ever could with any sort of partner that he had. Even if it was Nick and Cell, I don't I think, think yeah. it's, it would have been the same type of relationship. I think Nick's too used to being at the top of the food chain and any, any, there, there is never going to be equality in any relationship he's in, whether it's friendships or romantic or whatever. Um, he's too used to being on top. And I don't think that kind of relationship equality is something that he would ever understand. Yeah. I think she, she, she has two options with his character going forward. Either he is going to be a part of dismantling this very, awful system that's based on a lot of really bad things. And we can talk about like the difference between like the root magic root craft and like colonizer magic too, which I think is also really like fascinating and really well done. But like, so he's either going to be part of like toppling that system, which is why Bree sticks around. She's like, no, I'm going to fight this. Like we're going to fight it together. That's why she agrees to be his squire. So he's either going to, he's going to help save the day or he's, he's not going to. And she and Sal, I think, are going to ultimately have to go through him to maybe affect some change going forward. I, I kind of hope it's the first, just because I, I, there were moments that I did kind of like him initially, but we'll see. I think I'm getting a lot of Luke and Percy Jackson vibes from him. Like I, I just... read Percy Jackson. It's my one shame. I'm saying we're old, Colby. Well, those of you who are who have read Percy Jackson, I'm getting very strong Luke vibes from him. I did not see. Is that not like a good thing? Also, it's not a good thing. (laughs) It's not a good thing. Okay. You know, one of the things, though, again, because I've done a lot of Twitter deep dives. (laughs) Again, I, I do. I did a lot of. Twitter research on Twitter, like Tracy Dion, like going back through her tweets to see some desperate to find out when book two is going to be. And she's announced nothing again. Cause she's a fangirl too. She's definitely encouraged a lot of like the Nick cell shippers out there because there are hints of that here. She's also like given her blessing to like the ship name Bricane for like a, a, like a, Oh my God. What's the word? Polycule. A polycule. Thank you. Of Nick Bree cell. Close the triangle. Wait, so we had Nick and Cell, and they could have called that Incel, and they didn't <laughs> do it? That's very upsetting to me. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> oh my god, that's great. I don't know what the... I don't know what their ship name is. I don't know why my mind went to sick. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> It's incel to me now. <laughs> I love it. I love that so much. I don't know. One of the things that is interesting, when you, especially when you go back to reread and you get the reveal that Cell said he was in love with Nick. Like a lot of like his behavior about Nick in the beginning does read as like, I'm low-key in love with you type things. And she does give us that line where he says that he's in love with him. And like, I like a lot of the queer rap in this book, but 
you know, I, and I get the impulse, particularly of queer readers to jump on the fact that maybe Sal and Nick will be a thing. I don't see that that's where it's really heading ultimately. And I wouldn't want it to happen unless Nick like has a, a, a turn for the more positive side of things with what we talked about. Yeah. I think that power imbalance needs to be yeah fixed before anything like that could happen because I don't like the way that Nick, especially like it's even more upsetting knowing that Sal had feelings for Nick as a kid and probably through a lot of his teen years, knowing that Nick was treating him like this. Like it's, it's really upsetting. It makes that scene where he hits him like way, way, way worse. Yeah. And Sal just takes it. I love Brie in that moment. You know, she's, she's clocking some of these things, right? She's like, I can't believe he's taking advantage of the fact that Sal can't hit him back, like because of the oath and whatever. So, you know, I would, I would love nothing more for someday to have one of these YA triangles turn out with the two boys together. I would love it. Or to turn out where they just close the triangle. Or where they turn where it closes the triangle. I don't think either of those things are going to happen here, but I could be wrong. And I, the thing is, too, like when I first read this book, Cell is totally the type of character that I would be interested in from that perspective. But he was a little too, and I think you said this too, Tasia, when we were talking, like he's too much almost at the beginning. Yeah, it's the tunnel vision that you're a demon, you're a demon every scene. I'm like, all right, this, yeah. is, this get, is getting a little old now. And fine, I mean, and then all when of a sudden, make the like, chart, I'm like, all right, I'm in. Let's yeah, do this. <laughs> so I trust her to take me wherever she wants to go. Um, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I like I, I like that we have that representation at least here and and some other great like I said queer representation here I love Greer with non-binary I like the role that they kind of play with Brie obviously it's different but also being other within the order um that's really great and there's quiet moments too I forget who says it but at one point one character says something like oh um who's the lucky person uh, when someone's talking about like having a crush on somebody, so it's not you know. I think that was Bree to William. Yes, yeah. So I like that William. Um, yeah. So there's just like a lot of like casual queerness in a very natural way that I liked a lot too. Can I talk about food real quick? Yeah. Please yes. Do. So with food, I thought it was really interesting that whenever. Brie is at one of these fancy dinners at the lodge. Oh, by the way, real Carolina thing. We have a castle on campus, Hipple. Um, yeah. That's wild. Hipple Castle that does house like a secret order. I don't know how that, uh, <laughs> that's in my head. It's, <laughs> it's kind of a big thing. It's, it's kind of a big thing. Um, I don't know what goes on in there. I've never been there. It is where that, where that castle is on, um, in the book, that's about where it is on campus. Anyway, uh, when whenever she's eating there, someone is always aggressive towards her every mm-hmm. time that she is eating with these people. Even when it's at the gala at the Carolina Club, she gets attacked in that way. But whenever she's feeling down, and Alice notices she goes and gets her a Bowberry biscuit from Bojangles, which. By the way, and this is why I'm defending Alice, uh, that Bojangles um, is even further from campus than I am. Uh, so it takes effort <laughs> to go to Bojangles right. to get that biscuit just for your friend. Um, when I saw that, I was like, oh, yeah, that's that's a good friend right there. Or yeah. when um, when she went to Waffle House with her dad, um, that 
is when these are the moments where she feels most relaxed and most healed is Mm -hmm. it's not about like the venue or the classiness of the food is freaking bojangles and and waffle house love it uh, with the texas pete the very important texas pete not tabasco (laughs) uh we i actually had a very long conversation about tech uh, Texas Pete with my partner <laughs> on Thursday, which is really funny when I got to that part of the book. That's funny. Tasia, do you want to like talk about Alex now? <laughs> um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll preface this and say that by the end, I think Alice, it, she comes through in a good way, but there are a lot of issues in the beginning that I think she isn't really called out for. And uh, I don't like it. I, I think that's fair. I think yeah. I think those feelings are fair, but go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she feels like a really fair weather friend in a lot of ways. Like they they come to this school. Um Brie in no way harangues her into going to this party at the quarry. She does not force her in any way to do it, but once they get into trouble, um Alice acts like she was held at gunpoint and dragged there. Like she made a choice to go to that party. And she is just losing it on Brie. She completely uh, disregards Brie complaining about the the racism that she saw from the cop and from the dean. Yeah. Um. And and writes it off and and blames that on Brie as well. Tells her not to like instigate it, basically. Which I thought was a really bad, really bad look for Alice there. Um. Later, when uh, when she gets brought home by Nick and she's been bespelled or whatever um and alice thinks oh you got blackout drunk blah 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 calls her pedestrian and yeah. and and delusional and brie says i wasn't drunk and her instinct as a good friend should have been to say oh maybe you were drugged did something happen to you let's figure this out let me like her, she should have been concerned about her fucking friend instead she just said oh you know you just did that you and and Brie does not have a history of of behaving in that way. So why would she jump to those conclusions? She then immediately goes, oh, you know, they say that, you know, you go to college and your friends change. I guess that's what's happening. Dude, it's been like two days. Yeah. That's you went to one party and then your friend came home probably drugged. And this is the, immediately, this is what you're jumping to. And then she rats her out to her dad multiple times. You cannot be trusted with any information. I just kept thinking, like, what if something happened to Brie one day and she, you know, she needed to, you know, if something happened and she didn't want her dad to know, would that information be safe with Alice? You know, if Brie needs, you know, uh, to go to Planned Parenthood or something one day, is Alice going to immediately hop on the phone and tell her fucking dad? Like, it's not cool. It it feels very paternalistic, um, controlling. It feels like she is upset with Brie for not being like, like Brie calls herself like the, the after Brie and the before Brie. Like she, she's like upset with Brie for not being the before Brie. She wants Brie to be who, who she thinks of Brie as. And when she goes off that path a little bit, Alice punishes her for it. Have y'all seen the movie book smart? Yes. Yes. There's a lot of book smart, like the first 15 minutes of book smart in Alice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is why I kind of give her a pass because yeah. she's like, she's like 16 years old and is still in that phase of like, okay, I have to do everything right or else my entire future is ruined. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and I, I definitely see that in her because that was definitely me. Uh, I was definitely definitely the book smart kid where it was like, wait, you all partied and you all had fun and you got into the same school I did. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very interesting. Yeah, it just makes me mad because I don't feel like Alice is really given as much shit for all of that behavior Mm -hmm. as she deserved when they quote unquote make up. Brie is instant. Like, I mean, she apologizes too. I don't feel like Brie had anything really to apologize for. Yeah. And, and Alice still gives her the cold shoulder when Brie can't divulge everything that's been going on. When she says, I can't tell you this, Alice immediately gives her the cold shoulder again and then goes and tells her dad on her. Like that's shitty. It's not good friend behavior. I don't think. And um, also when she's like, Oh, when Brie comes home, I think after the first or second trial or something, and she's all fucked up. And um, Alice is like, oh, you know, oh, my God, if something happened to you, you can tell me. I'll believe you. And I'm like, will you, though? Because when Brie told you that she did not come home drunk, uh, you did not believe her then. So what reason does Brie have to trust you? That's fair. That's 100 percent fair. Yeah, I think in the end, it it turns out she comes through. That's good. But I'm still like I I have a bad taste in my mouth from her. And she's got to do more to make up for that. For me, at least. I'm mad. (laughs) We've talked before on this podcast too. I think I'm always, because I was a goody two-shoes, I'm more um, sympathetic towards goody two-shoes type characters, particularly like Wylan and the Six of Crows books. I've always looked more forgiving of Zantasia's. I do think too, and I, I this has happened before in other books where I just like don't want to blame a character. I want to blame the author. And I say that for Alice because yeah, telling her dad is like shitty. I would never do that like in a million years. I think you can be a goody two-shoes and and be a good friend. Exactly. No, my point is, though, how else was, again, the constraint that Tracy Deanna's put herself in here is that Bree is a high school student. And so, therefore, her dad still has some autonomy over her to force her into this therapist relationship. So, it's a little plot convenient for me is just how I'm choosing to look at it. So, again, I, I do this sometimes where I'm like, I'm not really going to blame the character. I'm going to blame, like, plot, plotting to, like, get her to that point and not necessarily hold it against her because I do think she does kind of come through but that's just me yeah when I was reading it um and I was I was ranting to you about Alice and you were like oh I never (laughs) like like I just I don't remember any of this happening yeah yeah um you mentioned before Brie and after Brie uh a little Mm -hmm. bit uh so I think maybe we should just kind of touch on the grief aspect of this. So Tracy Dion does note in her author's note that she lost her mom at a very young age too. And I think the way I, I mean, I don't have experience with that, so I can't speak to it, but I trust that that is all so well done and so truthful because it comes from such a place of truth. And then how she wove it again into Bree's own history her family history and that her her family kept her all the women in her family keep dying on this the price ultimately of um her her family's saving themselves um way back and how that weaves in then too with again the other themes in the book about how i think one of the most beautiful passages in this book is when she sees the wall with all the lines and she thinks about how who where's my history like we can't trace it back past the emancipation like why don't we have you know I I I like how that all just really ties in and so at the end when Brie 
kind of gets rid of the distinction between before Brie and after Brie. It's not that she's over her mother's death and she never will be, but she's processed through it. She's learned more about herself and all these different facets that led up to who she is. And she's like accepting all of them. I think it's such a powerful moment. She got that moment of closure with her mom too, through that memory. Yeah. Um, And, and getting to say goodbye to her and to know that, you know, her, because, you know, they'd had a fight right before her mom died. So I think that that closure was really important for Brie to kind of forgive herself. Yeah. I think kind of bridging between her mother and the, the ancestors, which we can talk about. Mm-hmm. I think that that moment with the wall is very familiar to me. Just kind of the jealousy that I think a lot of, I mean, I'll speak for myself that I feel, or I, I used to feel, I don't really feel that way anymore. Uh, when there would be those assignments is like, trace your family tree, <laughs> uh, like in, in elementary mm-hmm. and middle school. It's like, we could go back like decently far, but I think the furthest that we were able to go is, was about like the 1890s. And before that, there just weren't very good records. Uh, to track anything beyond that. And the my mom uh, last Christmas did like a 23andMe or like something, one of those that like you trace your genealogy, um, which was cool. But like, I almost didn't really want to know because like, let's say my family is from like, uh, at least genetically uh, from Nigeria I am not Nigerian American. I do not have any of those those customs, any of those traditions. All of my traditions, my my family is almost almost entirely um, black descendants of slaves. Hmm. Those are my people. Like though those are my ancestors. That is my culture. That is where I come from. So that that moment really, really stood out to me. And I I think it's really cool, this fantasy of being able to talk to those people and get their insight and get their help. Uh, Black folks really talk a lot about the ancestors just as a as a construct, the ancestors. Um, And I really like the the materialization of that in this book is is really cool. Yeah. And I like how that ties in then to, to the, like, to the root magic and this idea of like, you ask your ancestors to like borrow this for a time to do X, Y, Z thing, whether it be healing or being a medium, which is what Brie is and can speak more directly to the ancestors. And I love how all that ties in and then the contrast with like colonizer magic and how like the order has really, they've stolen it and how they've reaped what they've sowed because they come, they came to America and they basically invited evil, which is what the demons read off of because they were stealing everything left and right. That contrast is so beautifully depicted. And then again, just the way it weaves into the magic system on both ends is brilliant. Really, really well done. Yeah. One thing, another thing I like is that it, I'm trying to figure out how I want to say this. It really drives home the point that we, we being um, black descendants of enslaved people, we are our ancestors and they live through us. 
Uh, the song Lift Every Voice and Sing is the Negro National Anthem. And everybody, or not everybody, but people now know uh, the first verse of that song. That's actually a poem that is three verses long. Mm-hmm. So the first verse is the one that ends uh, facing the rising sun of our new day begun. Let us march on till victory is won. But the second verse, if you will indulge me for just a second. Sure. Stony the road we trod, bitter the chastening rod, felt in the days when hope unborn had died. Yet with a steady beat, have not our weary feet come to the place for which our fathers sighed. We have come over a way that with tears has been watered. We have come treading our path through the blood of the slaughtered. Out from the gloomy past till now we stand at last where the white gleam of our bright star is cast. And it's all that first person collective. It's all we, it's our, we are them, they are us. And I really like how all of that is woven so beautifully into the second half of this book. Yeah, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it is. And I love that in the moment that, and then she has, she feels like she's got three things going on. She's got like her, her ancestors. And then she has Arthur, who's, this interloping force that she doesn't want, which is very fitting given how she became Arthur in this, in this story and then herself. And I'm really interested to see how all of that continues to play out on her journey going forward here. Just. Yeah. I think at the end of this, I wrote that, um, I mean, spoiler, Brie is my favorite arc here, but um, (laughs) it's very clearly unfinished. And I think that by the end of it, it's going to be, incredible i'm really excited to to see where that ends up i think you mentioned this too though just kind of uh, on a a funnier note the idea that her grandma is just like with her (laughs) (laughs) now that's my favorite character (laughs) is her grandma (laughs) uh so fitz is about to get murdered and evan's betrayal is about to be revealed but the scene where they're fighting like the demon bat things and she's like not now grandma like she yells this out loud and i just i was laughing so hard because i just kept imagining like the other two guys being like the fuck (laughs) (laughs) like commentary from the grandma like the whole time she's like no go ahead and then (laughs) grandma goes to sleep i'm like i love it (laughs) yeah it's It's so great getting slapped from beyond the grave i can't (laughs) (laughs) imagine it's like there's nothing you can do about it it's just like well i guess (laughs) i'm really interested in how the romantic moments in the story going forward are going to play out with uh just granny chilling (laughs) just chilling in her head Uh, the grandma's there when she has it like super hot make out with nick like after he picks her and i'm like okay she does just time for a nap grandma she does talk about like closing the door she's a lot of wall imagery in terms of like walling off her grief Mm -hmm. and then walling off her the access to her ancestors so they can't like just constantly be there um but yeah (laughs) um but that i think then that might be a good point to to in terms of what's coming forward and if there's no other big topics we want to talk about um want to briefly talk about our speculation as to where this might be going going forward because I've tried to spend a lot of time thinking about it and I still have no concrete answers. So I'm interested to see what you guys think might be going here and how, how tied are we going to be to the Arthurian legend going forward? Because uh, it's being blown up in a lot of ways here. And 
I, I don't know which, what more we're going to get from it or if it's just going to be like total subversion going forward or if it's going to like guide where we're going. I don't know. I've seen a lot of people talking about um, the possibility of of going back to that kind of Arthur Lancelot Guinevere drama right. with um, with Nick and Brie and Cell, um, but I do kind of think that we've already covered that yeah. in the sense of of their ancestors right. having that that drama. So I mean, it, it could go there, but I'm I'm sort of hoping it doesn't. I do think Alice. If it's possible, I think Bree's going to try to make Alice her squire, which would be yeah. Cool. Well, here's my question: Who do you think is going to be Bree's king's mage? Because Sal's oaths to Nick, and so at the end, he's like, "You need a," and she's like, "Your oath to Nick." Could it be his mom, who is not? It doesn't seem to be crazy, as they kind of said that she was. That like they go, um, like because they're part demon, the mages are, and that like eventually they stop uh being able to keep the demon side at bay so and obviously she's more so they've been told uh, yeah exactly um and obviously his mom is more um more of a player than he thought because at the end she's trying to protect Bree's mom because they were friends and i don't know that's really interesting yeah i i don't i don't know i i hope they don't go the guinevere route anymore like because it's here they talk about it they like put that part of the um the legend out there already so i hope we don't go down that path i have watched the television show merlin i don't know if you've ever watched it my mom loved merlin i've never seen a minute my mom loved <laughs> okay but like watching that show the best chemistry on that show was between merlin and martha obviously that's not where the show went so i like i would love i mean i'm a cell fan cell squad hashtag cell squad well, I wonder if if Sal's oath to Nick is even valid anymore because Nick isn't the king. Um, he can't be Nick's king's mage because Nick's not a king. Yeah, so but he never was. He never was, and he obviously has the oath. Yeah, but I mean, maybe they could dissolve it now because yeah, I don't know, it's unnecessary. I also read a theory in this Legendborn Discord. I formed that like the first book was called Legendborn, and then maybe one of the other ones will be Shadowborn. Um, because that's like the demon side of things, and then maybe the last one will be like once born, which are like the non-magical people. I do think there's also some interesting things out there too, unresolved issues with Nick and his mom, mm. and how like I mean that's really fucked up too. Very how, Zuko, like, extremely mm. Zuko. It is. One day I'll watch Avatar. Don't yell at me. <laughs> <laughs> I know who Zuko is. I know. I know. But anyway, so I think that's like an interesting path forward for the three of them. They all have mother trauma in a lot of ways Tasha, i don't know if you've read the search but i have not but i do i know i know the broad movements in it i i would not be to, to not spoil i would not be surprised if there is a uh avatar last airbender the search-esque arc for nick yeah. i think i know what you're what you mean because I, I know what happens in there so yeah, yeah. In, yeah. in, in layman's term, briefly, what does that mean? It means that maybe Nick finds a way to reconcile with his mother and maybe start a new life there. Or maybe his mother does know mm. uh, everything that happened and was able to resist the mesmer. And is just avoiding him to keep him safe, mm. perhaps. I I think that uh nick's gonna go evil I, I i i don't think he's gonna i don't see him i don't if it were me 
I, I'd like to see him go down the go down the evil path and maybe him and his father uh utilized the line of Morgan, Morgan, however you say it, to I don't know, do something evil. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And I think um I feel like there's gotta be a reason why Nick's father thought that he would be an easy puppet to master, you know, because his father couldn't be the scion anymore. So, and, and he assumed that he could easily control Nick. He's so. banking on a lot. He does a lot of really fucked up shit on the basis mm-hmm. that he thinks he's going to be controlling Nick. That's a really good point. I'm really interested to see how the line of Morgan ties in. Obviously, like the demon indicates that that's who they're working with at this point. But I kind of get the sense that ultimately... Again, I can't shake the thought that like the line of Morgan is perhaps like misunderstood or like has better intentions or something. And that mm-hmm. I feel like Cell's mom is maybe involved with them. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I see that. And also, I don't know if I've just been too into Marvel television lately. It's like maybe there are enough balls in the air <laughs> and maybe just the evil line needs to be evil. Just, <laughs> yeah. just to keep everything the way it is. Yeah. Maybe, maybe this, maybe the spoon is just a spoon. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's a very good point. Although I do think again, because we said our our one overall critique that we all seem to share is that the lore, it's a little too lore heavy sometimes for us. Mm. So like that kind of makes me think that she wants to keep going down that path. But honestly, I'll take whatever like she wants to give us. I'm. Mm -hmm. so thrilled to see where this is gonna go we talk about some some superlatives here yeah all right great so favorite uh quote as a typical quotation i have a million colby (laughs) has one i have one (laughs) we play very fast and loose with the rules here we do colby why don't you go first and then tage and i will alternate rapid style here so Bree's dad was talking to her about her mom in the Waffle House. And he said, in some ways, I think your mother couldn't stand Carolina, but she loved it something fierce too. No matter how she felt about that school, she could never get it out of her system. And that is just so eloquently put how I feel about that school, how I feel about my home, how I feel about like North Carolina in the South. Like, I am a North Carolinian. I am a Southerner. I am from here and I love it. And I don't know if I could ever leave. And I still, because you know, history, like it's not even loving in spite of it. It's just finding the things that are so special to you about the place where you grew up. A podcast I listened to said, if you, if you hate home, then you're going to be miserable. Mm. And I don't know if that's true, but I, I know why black folks in the South, people of color who are in places or just oppressed people who are in places where they are historically and even today are still oppressed, still love their homes because I do. And is that is just so well put in three lines that I could never say out loud. <laughs> I could never like put do- that string of words together for myself. I really love it. Yeah. Love that, Colby. All right. Well, now I've got like the cell twilight <laughs> reference here. So like- <laughs> it's fine. Awkward transition. Let's go. 
piggyback. Excuse me. You heard me. Like that movie. Shut up. Oh, that was okay. I got it. I was thinking um, Empire Strikes Back, like a little, like, it's Twilight because then he goes on to say she does have a piggyback, but she's like choking him and he's like, I'm not an actual vampire. I need to be able to breathe. It's for sure Twilight. You're yeah. right. Yeah. And then you have to give the, the Twitter stuff. It's so funny. What did she tweet? Oh, I don't remember what exactly she said, but like someone tweeted at her, like, "Oh, did Cell oh, did Cell did Cell read Twilight?" And she was like, "Oh, yeah, he read um, all the books in like a week, and then watched the first movie by himself in his room, um, <laughs> and then and then privately thinks that he can take Edward." Yeah, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> Just I love that for him. Yeah. What quotes do you have, Tasha? Some truth, some truths only tragedy can teach. The first one I learned is that when people acknowledge your pain, they want your pain to acknowledge them back. They need to witness it in real time or else you're not doing your part. I like that. It's true. I like this one, which Bree's dad also, he has some very, uh, I think this is in the same conversation where he says, don't make your life about the loss, make it about the love, which is really just on so many levels, the thesis statement of this book. It's not just Bree's immediate loss of her mother. It is generational loss and trauma. And, you know, she she's motivated by her choice at the end for love. She loves Nick, whether that's a romantic love or like this connection that the their ancestors have given them whatever it is she's being motivated by it and that's kind of going to be her impetus going forward and that for her all right Tasia, what else you got oh we can see that russ laughs at his own joke while evan says sorry to interrupt my liege please proceed with thy gentle tonguing <laughs> funny i like it i like this moment for brie um two faults my race and my gender but they are not faults they are strength and i am more than this man can comprehend like like that Woo. <laughs> I love that. Tasia? She smiles. Do you trust me? I blink. That's usually what someone says when they're about to do something weird to someone else. And I love that that's called out in this book because I see it all the time in different forms of media where one character does the, do you trust me line? And it's like this big, like usually it's like some kind of emotional connection moment. And I'm like, no, that's a weird thing to ask somebody. That's basically just being like, hold on, we're going to get into some weird, I'm going to do something very untrustworthy right now. Yeah. <laughs> that is so true. Yeah. It's like, do you trust me? Not particularly. <laughs> no, I don't. Like, you know, maybe I did, but I don't anymore. Yeah. This is my last one. This is like the big moment at the end where Brie kind of just is like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to do my thing. And then I unwind her, one strand for my mother, one for my father, one for me. I unravel the rage until it courses through my veins like fuel in an engine. I let it become a part of me, but not all of me. Hot, scorching pain under my skin, under my tongue, under my nails. I let it spread through me until there is no more before and no more after. I am her and she is me. So again, just like knocking down this wall that she's tried to restrain her pain um, from herself. And she's embracing it and she's running with it. All right, I've got two more. My agony has a hunger, I've discovered. It doesn't want the truth, not really. It just wants to feed itself sorrow until no other emotion is left. Yeah, that's that's how I feel things too. Unspeakable evil gave me Arthur. Vera's resistant, resistance gave me power, but I earned my will. Love well, those yeah, self-empowering moments. Yeah, yeah, great. But we love in fantasy heroine, just great stuff. All right, character and arc, we uh, kind of already talked about a bit would you like to go first yeah uh 
besides Granny, uh, who I love, <laughs> uh, who is probably over the course of this series is going to become my favorite character. I really like William. Yeah. William just seems like they're just there to do their job and get out the way. Yeah. I really appreciate it. As far as favorite arc, I don't want to say Brie because I'd really like to see where Brie ends up. Her arc feels very similar to my life, and that just feels very self-aggrandizing. So I'm just going to not do that. Um, And I'll say Cell. Yeah. I think there's great um, arguments for Cell to, at the end, he's been so, like, bound by the oath. And I like how you pointed out, Colby, how you think that, like, at the beginning, too, he's really, he's just so bound to protect. Like, he's, he's going along with what he's been ingrained and he's taught. And he's starting to challenge all that by the end. And he's willing to accept Brie. He's like the only one she points out too that is still looking at her like Brie, but he's willing to kind of follow her lead and where she's going and kind of dispense some of his belief in rigidity and of his belief in the system. And yeah, I like that for him a lot. And it, it works that works with Cell because it has been his entire life. Yeah. Like it's not like some it works because it is almost akin to like brainwashing. Yeah. Where like, there is a very easy argument to be made that the cell that we meet at the very beginning of this book could be very, very, very different from whose self turns out to be as a person at, towards the end of the series, which I don't know the end of, but you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it'll be really interested to pit that against Nick who, arguably has been also, you know, brainwashed in that same system. And I think we already see how they're reacting to those things differently. Um, I'm going to shout out to William too. He's just so funny to me. Tasia knows this finally begun my Buffy journey. And William is very much like a young canonically gay Giles, which I love all of that because I also love Giles, even though he's not like a college student on on Buffy. (laughs) Um, But he's also very like hot and like kind of a little snarky and just a little like he's got big Giles energy. And I love it. Um, I also love too, like at the end, he's leaving Brie these notes that are really funny, but then he like at the end, she's revealed to be like his King. She is Arthur Sion. And like, he like puts post-its on her forehead. She wakes up, she thinks it's a bandaid. It's like post-its from William. (laughs) And he's just like, Oh yeah, like heard it was quite traumatic. Like I like Alice. Talk to me when you're ready. And like it's just it's a fun, fun vibe from William. Um, but my favorite character um is Sal because I'm just trash for those types of characters. And there's never a chance that I would not eat up everything that Tracy Dion is serving us when it comes to him. And so there I am. There I am, Asia. Yeah, you guys said it all. Sell and Brie for favorite character, Brie for arc, um, even though it is incomplete. Okay, so swoon moment. I would like to say, and Colby got caught up in some text messages of this, and I don't know the extent that, to which you're aware, I'm always accused of stealing the best swoon moments. I like cover a book, <laughs> I put it in first because like these moments are embedded in my brain. She does it sometimes before we've even read the book, just because she remembers from her previous read. I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I guess is that stealing? Maybe yes. I did not do that here because I read the book. You two didn't. And I did not want to spoil in the notes what happened. So then Tasia goes, Corinne, I can't believe you are letting me steal the things. And, and I said, I'm sorry. I'm being a good friend. So can I read like the ultimate, like really big one? Fine. Okay. It's just, it lives front free in my brain. Uh, Sal at the end. You're my king now, Carried, which in Welsh means love. So he's basically saying, you're my king now, love. 
And it's a lot. Uh, we made a uh, friend of the pod, Martha, Colby's podcast ho- uh, co-host. Uh, when I say we, me and friend of the pod, Jesse made Martha make a sticker for her Etsy shop that says you're making that period. So check that out at Media Maven Martha on Etsy. It's just, it's a great line. Great line. It's a really good line. I love love a man that that finds out she's the king and he's the first one to kneel to her. I just... Yeah. Chef's kiss. I love that shit. Eat it up. Uh, Colby, do you have any favorite spoon? I think mine is going to be, oh, I forget when Cell says this to Brie, but um, he asked a couple times, and if this is the last time he asked, do you feel something when I look at you? Um, that's That's the one. That's definitely the one. It's real good. And then like, after he knows that she feels something when he looks at her, she goes to the gala and, and like then he's can, just a jerk about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he's still he's still looking at her. Like she mm-hmm. thinks about like I can feel his gaze and like I I don't want to think about like I know that he knows that I can feel the thing. He's doing it anyway. Just saying, Tasha, another one here. <laughs> read read this. I mean. Mm. Great moment. Here. Okay, uh, since we're already talking about like the the ball gown, or I mean the ball scene, Cell clears his throat and turns us again. He admires my hair, taking in the size and shape of it. Then his eyes follow the line of, of my temple to my borrowed earrings, down my neck and my shoulders. You look stunning this evening, Brianna. The material of my dress is so thin I can feel the searing heat of his hand against my waist. I imagine his fingertips leaving red imprints on my skin, and the image makes the fine hairs of my na- on the nape of my neck stand on end. Thank you, I say hoarsely. It's the truth, he says with a shrug. You do, even though you're distraught. I'm not distraught. He leans down so close that his lips brush against my ear when he whispers, liar. (laughs) I love, there's a lot of like kryptonite things for me in that scene. I love a nickname. It's, I talk about that a lot on the show. So the fact that he, he doesn't. It's the reverse nickname. the reverse nickname. Like calling her her full name really works for me. Although he does call her Brie in one very vulnerable moment in the tunnels when they've like escaped. And it's like their first, she, she clocks that too. Like always calling me Brie. I love that. It's just like a lot of things working for me. Yeah. Great. Dressed in all black. Looking good. A a literal uh, demonic demon. (laughs) Nightmare boy. Yeah, I know. I I messaged Corinne when I was like, "Wait, Cell is a sex demon? Like yeah, that just happened in this story?" I was like, "What are you trying to do to me, Tracy?" Oh, it's so good. I do like think too because she is a fangirl. I felt like his look, and I think at one point during the dance, he purrs. Like it says, he like Cell purrs. Um, and I think that that to me feels very, very Illyrian boy. It it calls very much to resand from the A Court of Thrones and Rosa series. Like she knows what she's doing. She's very, um, very smart. I have to give some brief shout outs to Nick though, because um, he's got some game. He's got some good moments here. He's got here. game. Like, yeah. yeah like... One of my favorite other kryptonites, Nick, what are my two? Tasia, nicknames and wrist touching. Wrist touching. <laughs> like really is a big thing for me. But he, so he he's got a, a related to wrist touching is palm touching. It's a new one. He like holds his like thumb to her palm and like feels her pulse a lot. So um, I therefore I'm compelled to love it. It's just who I am. It's my uh, it's my fatal flaw. It's who I am. So I also have a Nick moment. Um, that thing you just did. That thing you do. He says his eyes filled with humor and a shadow of hurt. Tell yourself I'm just teasing. It's okay to be nervous, but please don't dismiss the idea that I like you, B. Um, we both are big fans of nicknames. I don't like Nick. I don't like B for for Brie. It's presumptuous. It's yeah. Uh and and it's 
yeah, I think no, you put it perfectly. It's presumptuous, but I do like that where, um, you know, she, she tries to ignore the, the flirting or whatever, assuming that he is working an angle or something, but, um, I was very I like caught, caught off guard when he called her B. I was like, you don't know her like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's definitely, I was, I was blinded by his charms a little bit the first time through, but now the second time I'm on board with you two, you all are smarter than me to pick up on some of these like in, more insidious. Uh, these white men are dangerous. To <laughs> <laughs> alert, alert. Um, <laughs> well, gosh, this was really fun. This is a very long conversation, but I'm not mad about it. I'm not mad about it either. I know beforehand, we always say we're going to try to limit to an hour and it's just not possible. But this, book, I know you said that and I was like, huh, it's cute. I know, but there's so much in this book and it is, this is so good. And I'm so glad we, we talked about it. And Colby, thank you so much for coming on and um, sharing your experiences on this one. Cause it was, it was great. And for sure had to return to favor. Oh yes. <laughs> yes. I, we have, well, Tasia, you've been on, you were on four nations, right? Tasia. Mm-hmm. And then yeah, I've been on Martha and Colby grew up, so yeah, we, it's all very incestuous. This podcast circle here, <laughs> and and we love it, and we would love to have you back some other time to talk about another book if you'd like. Yeah, especially the sequel whenever that drops. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to come back. I think someone mentioned that it looked like on. She just tweeted that she turned in the draft, so it's written of book two. So fingers crossed, we get some it, it can be it can be years and years before we know yeah. the name of that book. I know. I have Gosh. seen way too much of Hank Green's writing process <laughs> to yeah. get excited by that. I know that's very true. Although I do think with series, they're under more like tight contractual obligations. So like, yeah, possibly that's a true. Senior. Uh, all right. Well, before we go uh, briefly, Tasia, do you want to tell our listeners what we are covering next on Age? Yes. Uh, next week, we are going to finish up uh, one of the first series that we ever talked about here, which was the Carry On. Uh, the Simon Snow series uh, with the final book in the trilogy, which is Anyway the Wind Blows by Rainbow Rowell. Uh, and we will be back with our Carry On Wayward Son guest, Melissa. Yeah, very excited about it. Before we go to uh, Colby, would you like to tell our listeners where they can find you online, where they can find your podcast? Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Colby Complains. You can also find Never Made Varsity wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we just put up a really, really cool episode about conference realignment. If you care about that sort of <laughs> stuff. Yeah, if you care about that kind of stuff, is it was really fun. Uh, Martha and Colby grew up, like I said, comes out monthly. Um, if you want to rewatch Avatar Last Airbender, you can check out the Four Nations report. Um, that is all wrapped up, and we are not doing Cora, so it's done, done. So, yeah. Uh, Tasia, where can our listeners find you online? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Ragey Cakes. And I'm on Instagram at Rin underscore reads. You can find the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Act Your Age. And you can choose an email if you'd like at actyouragepod at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And if you wouldn't mind rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, that would be much appreciated. We would very much like that. Um, other than that, Colby, thank you again so much. And we will see you all in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye. See ya.